Well, good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, let me also welcome those who are joining us through Cato's live streaming. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, uh, and uh, I'm your host for today's program. Uh, this is our 16th annual Constitution Day Symposium, brought to you through the generosity of one of Cato's most important benefactors, George M. Yeager, who's been a longtime friend of Cato and of many of our staff and supporters. I'm especially grateful to George for his longtime commitment to the Center for Constitutional Studies. Again this year, we've got a full program for you, despite the fact that last year's Supreme Court term uh, decided fewer cases uh, than ever in the modern era. Nonetheless, uh, we'll review uh, the more noteworthy of those decisions, and then uh, with our final panel, uh, look ahead for what's coming up in the next term, uh, which begins just two weeks from today, a uh, term that looks to be more promising. Uh, for a more detailed discussion uh, of the upcoming cases, we hope you'll enjoy the new 16th annual Cato Supreme Court review that you picked up on your way in. And for those of you viewing us through uh, live streaming, the new review is already up online. So just go to cato.org and find the review and past reviews for that matter under publications. But back to today's program. As usual, uh, we'll draw th uh, things to a close today with uh, Cato's 16th annual B. Kenneth Simon lecture. Uh, given this year by Columbia Law's Philip Hamburger, one of the nation's foremost experts uh, on administrative law, the law that regulates our lives in so many ways. And at the conclusion of the Simon Lecture, uh, please join us for a grand reception upon the Ken and Freda Levy uh, roof garden. Stepping back, uh, we hold uh, this symposium each year to mark the day 230 years ago that the framers of the Constitution finished the work on that long, hot summer in Philadelphia and sent the document they just drafted out to the states for ratification, reflecting a vision of liberty through limited government that the founders had set forth 11 years earlier in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution sought to establish a more perfect union. Much has happened over the years since then, of course, some of it good, such as the completion of the Constitution through the Civil War amendments, some of it not so good uh, as with the major reinterpretations of the document that took place during the New Deal, uh, which um, undermined much of the founders' uh, vision of limited government. Indeed, the critique of the constitutional inversion uh, has animated our work at the Center for Constitutional Studies from its inception. It will be a constant theme in today's program. To give you an overview of the program, let me introduce the man who's largely responsible for putting it together and for editing the review you have in your hands, Ilya Shapiro, who will moderate this first panel. Ilya is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at Cato and the coordinator of Cato's highly regarded amicus brief program. He's a graduate of Princeton, the London School of Economics in the University of Chicago Law School. After law school, he clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly 
on the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the uh, for Fifth Circuit. And then he practiced law, first with Cleary Gottlieb and then with Patton Boggs. Just before joining Cato, Ilya served as a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues. He's published widely as a frequent guest on radio and TV, and he lectures at law schools across the country. In 2015, the National Law Journal named Ilya to its list of 40 under 40 rising stars uh, in the legal community, and I just think he, he has just come off of eligibility for any such future lists, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'll turn the program over to Ilya now. I'll return to sit in our third panel, and then again at the conclusion of our regular program to introduce uh, Professor Hamburger. But for now, please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks, Roger. I must say, of all the introductions I've ever gotten, that is definitely the most recent. This is the 16th volume of the Cato Supreme Court Review, the nation's in-depth critique of the uh, Supreme Court term just ended, plus a look at the term ahead. We release this every year at this time on Constitution Day, uh, or thereabouts, this is Constitution Day observed. Uh, yesterday was the actual anniversary. Um, and uh, three months after the previous term ended, two weeks or so before the next term begins. We're very proud of the speed with which we publish this tome. Um, I'll just, I, I'm not going to name any of our competitors, but uh, uh, sitting on mine Rogers' desk is a, uh, another Supreme Court review that covers the previous uh, term. I'm glad they, they uh, got the, theirs published at the same time that we did this term. But anyway, we, we ask uh, leading scholars and practitioners like those you see here to produce thoughtful, readable commentary of serious length on short deadlines, and I'm grateful that so many agree to my unreasonable demands in that regard. Uh, and of its accessibility, at least as far as the court's opinions allow. I'm particularly proud that this isn't a typical law review whose submission's esoteric prolixity is matched only by their footnotes' abstruseness. I spend lots of time removing footnotes, whereas if any of you have ever published in a student law review, they want you to footnote every sentence. You know, the sky is blue, or I think blah, blah, blah. You know, where's your support for that? Um, instead, this is a book intended for uh, everyone from lawyers and judges to educated laymen and interested citizens. Thanks very much to David Lampo and the publications team here, Linda Asu and the conference staff, without which uh, this uh, today's event couldn't be uh, done. Trevor Burris, who's the managing editor and my right-hand man, you'll see him moderating one of the panels later on. Uh, Anthony Grusdis, who is our uh, all-purpose research assistant, uh, 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 you know, my man Friday kind of thing. He managed to avoid the sophomore slump last year and is an MVP not only on Cato's softball team, but here too. I was actually on vacation the week before last, and there was a weird hiccup that arose with the printer. Nothing I could have done about it uh, from Morocco, but a uh, good thing he didn't let me know either because I would have been going crazy. Just weird things that happen at the last moment, but all's well that ends well. The interns and the associates who you'll see flitting about throughout the day, again, none of this could be done uh, without them. I reiterate, reiterate our hope that this collection of essays will secure and advance the Madisonian first principles of our Constitution, giving renewed voice to the framers' fervent wish that we have a government of laws and not men. 
In so doing, we hope also to do justice to a rich legal tradition in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens alike understand that the Constitution exists to protect the natural rights of life, liberty, and property, and serve as a bulwark against abusive government power. In these heady times when the people feel betrayed by the elites, legal, political, corporate, and everything else, it's more important than ever to remember our proud roots in the Enlightenment tradition. Our first panel today covers First Amendment challenges, and boy, do we have some. When so many people subscribe to the Howard Dean School of Constitutional Jurisprudence in believing that so-called hate speech isn't protected by the First Amendment, we have our work cut out for us. Uh, and the Supreme Court had its work cut out for it last term with one case about disparaging trademarks. I'm sure you've seen Cato's satirical briefs uh, on behalf of a basket of deplorable organization uh, and individuals, one of whom sits here before you, uh, and another about how merchants can label the difference in price consumers pay for paying cash versus credit. Anyway, here to unpack these cases and discuss the major free speech issues coming to the court are three people well-versed in the field. Their bios are in your packets, so I'll just give a brief intro of each. Uh, first, Clay Calvert is the director of the Marion Breckner First Amendment Project at the University of Florida. He's authored or co-authored more than 100 law, law journal articles on topics related to the freedom of expression and has filed multiple amicus briefs in the Supreme Court. Calvert is the co-author with Don R. Pember of the market-leading undergraduate media law textbook, Mass Media Law, now it's in its 19th edition. He received his JD with great distinction from the University of Pacific McGeorge School of Law and then earned a PhD in communication from Stanford. Professor Calvert will cover Mattal versus Tam. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Come on up. Thanks. Uh, as Ilya just suggested, uh, I'm from Florida, so had we had this last week, uh, this would not be Constitution Day, this would be Irma Day. Uh, so I will not use the phrase hunker down. Uh, I promise to excise that from my vocabulary today. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be talking about the TAM case, which is kind of a fun case to lead off with. Uh, it involves an Asian-American dance rock band from Oregon called The Slants, and its frontman named Simon Tam. Uh, and their efforts, their failed efforts initially from the USPTO, the Patent and Trademark Office, to try to register that trademark, the slants. It was denied because it was deemed to be disparaging to Asian Americans with a reference to slanty or slanted eyes. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today, that case. And obviously it is an interesting case, and the Supreme Court ultimately rules uh, for Simon Tam and the slants and declares the uh, disparagement clause of the Federal Lanham Act to be unconstitutional. So on June 19th, the court in TAM declared unconstitutional the Disparagement Clause. Now, the Disparagement Clause, as I said, gave the USPTO the power to deny federal trademark registration for marks that may disparage, and this was the key part, persons, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols. And the other key word there is obviously the term disparaging. Now, the decision was really not groundbreaking. It didn't break any new ground. It was much more, rather, principles reaffirming in terms of uh, kind of reaffirming two major principles. And the first one was that the government cannot censor speech merely because people find it offensive or disagreeable. And that's a key principle. And the court didn't fall to the pox of political correctness in this case. 
bearing in mind that the fate of the Washington Redskins trademark registration case was kind of the elephant in the courtroom, right, looming in the background, and the fate of the Redskins trademark would necessarily hinge on this case. The court, by the way, did not grant certiorari, did decline to hear, in other words, the uh, Redskins case. And so this was really the key case that would determine the fate of the Washington Redskins trademark. So in addition to that first principle that the government cannot censor speech merely because it offends, the second key principle that was reaffirmed is that against viewpoint-based discrimination. In other words, the government cannot take sides on any particular issue. So for example, if the topic is abortion, the government cannot say, we'll only allow pro-choice speech, but not pro-life speech. That would be unconstitutional as viewpoint-based discrimination. And in this case, the court reiterated and reaffirmed that principle against viewpoint-based discrimination. Now, although these principles were reaffirmed in TAM, uh, the decision was not unanimous. There was no dissent, but there were actually three separate opinions. And I'll talk a little bit about those three separate opinions today in the, in the time that I have. So while the court all agreed on the result that the disparagement clause was unconstitutional, you had three opinions, and in particular two, where we had splintering at a 4-4 kind of loggerheads, and that's very important. I'll talk about that. So uh, before we get to this, and keeping in mind the fact that the uh, Redskins case was kind of waiting in the wings, I want to talk a little bit more about the slants in their case. As I said, they're an Oregon-based uh, Asian-American uh, dance rock band. Uh, and they wanted to take this name back, the slants, and the term that they use is reappropriation. If we want to use this word, we're going to take the power and the sting and the harm out of it, and we're going to call it ourselves. We are the slants. We're going to embrace this word so it no longer becomes hateful and hurtful. I want to quote basically some lyrics uh, from, the, from the slants. I don't have these memorized like I do for maybe Springsteen, but uh, I'm going to quote some lyrics here because their lyrics are political, and they are a politically oriented group, and that's important. So, sorry if we try too hard to take some power back for ours. The language of oppression will lose to education until the words can't hurt us again. So, sorry if you take offense, but silence will not make amends. The system's all wrong, and it won't be long before the kids are singing our song. And ultimately, in this case, the United States Supreme Court uh, sang the song of the slants and embraced it wholeheartedly. I wish I had known you were that we could have played the video back here. Oh, that would have been much better than me standing here trying to look serious about the, the song. Uh, yeah, we should have done that, interactive. Uh, so that, a little bit about uh, their lyrics, they're politically oriented, they fight this. They lose initially uh, down below the trade, uh, the USPTO, the Patent and Trademark Office denies that, disparaging. They lose initially at the court, in the courts, and it comes all the way up to the United States Supreme Court and the court grants certiorari. As I said, the court broke down into three groups, and I want to basically describe to them, because the splintering here among the justices may or may not be exactly uh, as you would find it. So Justice Alito wrote for a unanimous court uh, this opinion in some parts, and most significantly regarding government speech, where all of the justices agreed on this. And this was very important. The government speech doctrine basically is an exception to the First Amendment. And the government speech doctrine says this, that if the government is the speaker, the First Amendment doesn't apply at all. So if we said that trademarks, the government is speaking by registering or not registering a trademark, if that's government speech, then the slants lose right there because all First Amendment bets are off the table. And the United States Supreme Court in 2015 had heard a controversial case called Walker versus Texas Division Sons of Confederate Veterans, which involved the government speech doctrine. And that case involved license plates in Texas that were proposed by the Sons of Confederate Veterans, where they wanted to have Confederate battle flag imagery on these license plates. Uh, 
And the question was, when you see a specialty license plate, who is speaking? Are the Texas Division Sons of Confederate Veterans speaking, or is the state of Texas speaking? And the Supreme Court in, in Walker in 2015 said that specialty license plates are government speech. And so the Texas Division Sons of Confederate Veterans totally lost their First Amendment challenge. They were saying, you're discriminating against our specialty plate. You don't want it because you don't like Confederate battle flag imagery because the message it sends. So the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision with the four major uh, liberal justices uh, at that stage, joined by Justice Thomas, said, no, uh, government speech is involved here. Uh, Confederate veterans, you lose your case. Okay? So in, slant, in the Slants case, TAM, uh, the government had argued that when we actually give our imprimatur and we say, oh, we're going to register your trademark, we're speaking. The Slants really aren't speaking. And so this was the first chance since the Walker case where the court had a chance to revisit this very controversial doctrine. Again, because if the government speaks, you can't make a First Amendment challenge to it. And the Supreme Court unanimously rejected all eight justices, because Justice Gorsuch was not on the court at the time this was decided on June 19. Uh, all eight justices agreed that this was not a government speech case. And they strongly suggested that Walker was kind of the outer bounds of how far we're going to go. Because after Walker was decided, North Carolina had a case, and North Carolina kind of the reversal in terms of political correctness, political incorrectness, if you were. Uh, North Carolina's courts in the Fourth Circuit, essentially, excuse me, North Carolina, they allowed a license plate that was pro-choice, uh, but North Carolina didn't offer, excuse me, a pro-life license plate, but they didn't have a pro-choice license plate. And the courts essentially upheld that. So in other words, government speech doctrine can allow viewpoint-based censorship on either side of the equation. Uh, so they all agreed on that. Uh, all eight justices on the court said, this is not government speech. We're not going to buy that argument. But where they splintered was on two very important issues, I think. One is viewpoint-based discrimination. Uh, the Alito group, and Alito was joined in this case by Justices uh, Breyer, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, and Justice Thomas gave very cursory kind of coverage to the concept of viewpoint-based discrimination. And they said, OK, this is viewpoint-based discrimination because offense is a viewpoint, right? And we say, OK, you're offended by the slants. You're offended by the Redskins. That's a viewpoint. OK, viewpoint-based discrimination is, is unconstitutional. The other block, which is very interesting, uh, is Justice Kennedy uh, and the three women on the Supreme Court joining together uh, in an opinion in which they focused much more carefully uh, and much more rigorously on the concept of viewpoint-based discrimination. And for that group, uh, Kennedy's block of justices, if anything is viewpoint-based, it is always going to be unconstitutional. They were very clear on that. Uh, the Alito group was not so clear on that point. They were much more wishy-washy. Yes, viewpoint-based discrimination is, is generally going to be unconstitutional, but we're still going to apply a lower standard of scrutiny here to evaluate this case. The other issue on which the court fractured a little bit was commercial speech. So commercial speech, generally, we think of advertising. And traditionally, under the First Amendment jurisprudence, commercial speech has only received what we call intermediate scrutiny. It's received less protection than political speech. So if we look at the First Amendment, we create a hierarchy of speech. We put political speech at the top, commercial speech advertising somewhere in the middle, and then certain categories of speech like obscenity and child pornography are not protected. So when the government regulates commercial speech kind of in this intermediate era, uh, area, the government gets a lot more deference from the courts, and the courts only apply what we call intermediate scrutiny. Now, Justice Thomas has always objected to this. And Thomas has said, no, it is unfair to treat commercial speech differently than any other kind of speech. 
and the regulations on commercial speech should be subject to the rigorous strict scrutiny standard like almost any other category that is measured by its topic or its area. So Thomas wrote a, a very brief, separate concurring opinion in this case to express his view that commercial speech should be treated under strict scrutiny, which is important to note because Justice Alito's opinion then made the argument, because the argument here was uh, what the uh, trademark office said was that this is really commercial speech. The slants are advertising with their name. They're calling themselves the slants. They're promoting themselves. It's commercial speech. And they would rather have it called commercial speech, the government would, because again, the courts give it more deference if we're regulating commercial speech versus political speech. And the slants were saying we're political in this realm. Okay? Now, the court in Alito said it's sometimes hard to tell what's political and what's commercial speech. We can't always tell which is which in these cases. And then we get to Kennedy's opinion, and Kennedy said that even if this is commercial speech, because it is viewpoint-based, because it's viewpoint-based discrimination, you're saying you can only say positive things but not disparaging things. That's the essence of viewpoint-based discrimination. Even if it's commercial speech, that doesn't get it out from under the strict scrutiny standard that we apply when viewpoint-based discrimination is allowed. So the courts, the, the justices split on all of these realms. The last two things that I just want to mention very quickly is that it's very interesting that Justice Alito wrote an opinion here protecting uh, offensive speech and disparaging uh, trademarks. Alito has not typically been a friend of free speech. In Snyder versus Phelps, the Westboro Baptist Church case, he wrote the lone dissent in that case. Uh, in Stevens, which was the crush video case about images of animal cruelty, he wrote the lone dissent in that case. So you might say to yourself, has Alito ultimately crossed over and become a greater defender of free speech? I don't think so. I think he saw this case as more about political correctness than about offensive speech. And the final point I'll make is that Justice Breyer, who often is very squishy on First Amendment doctrines and engages in something we call proportionality, he, does, he doesn't buy all the typical tests that the court generally trots out. In this case, he hewed to the doctrines. He joined with Alito in everything. Uh, he did not wander off into the weeds on his own. So uh, in a nutshell, the slants win. Uh, by implication, the Redskins win. Uh, potentially, the floodgates for disparaging and offensive trademarks have opened up. And by the way, most states, you can also register your trademarks in states. And most states have similar provisions as this under the federal Lanham Act. And those two, by implication, are now unconstitutional. Thank you. Thanks, Clay. And I should also note that uh, while Bob Corn-Revere has been on uh, previous satirical briefs that we filed, uh, this time I think it was only one of his clients, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, that, that joined us. Um, uh, but, but also I wanted to uh, clarify for you, Clay, because I know you, you, you were curious about the, uh, the sausage making of that brief. Uh, you probably met Trevor now. He did all the musical references because he was a what we call a subsistence musician between college and law school. We also had an associate who's now at Pacific Legal Foundation who did all the legal stuff. And then I contributed the jokes and the section headings. That was the division of labor uh, on the brief. So, All right. Next we'll have uh, Paul Sherman, who's a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice. He joined IJ in July 2007. Happy decade, Paul. Uh, I just passed a decade at, at Cato last week, actually. So it's uh, celebrations all around. Uh, and he litigates uh, constitutional cases protecting the First Amendment, economic liberty, property rights, and other individual liberties. Paul has helped develop uh, IJ's occupational speech practice, which seeks to create greater constitutional protection against licensing laws that burden uh, speech. He's also litigated nu 
numerous campaign finance cases, including SpeechNow.org versus FEC, which led to the creation of so-called super PACs. You thought it was Citizens United? No, it's actually Paul's case, uh, SpeechNow.org. He received his law degree from George Washington University Law School and his master's in political campaigning from the University of Florida. Uh, and Paul will discuss expressions, hair design versus Schneiderman. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so Expressions Hair Design v. Schneiderman, like the TAM case, is also a case that is not groundbreaking. It doesn't announce a lot of new doctrine, but it is a significant case, I think, because it illustrates how far the court has come in clarifying some very fundamental First Amendment principles. Uh, and the case deals with uh, what are called swipe fees on uh, credit cards. So every time you use a credit card to pay for something, the credit card company charges a percentage to the merchant, and merchants have, since the existence of credit cards, wanted to have a way to pass that charge onto the consumer. And since the 1970s, credit card companies have inserted provisions in their contracts that prevent merchants from doing this, that say you have to charge people the same amount whether they pay with credit cards or whether they pay with cash. Um, this was eventually reflected in federal law, um, but this federal law expired in 1984, which led a number of states, including New York, to enact similar laws. Uh, now, all of this was basically superfluous because there were still these provisions in the credit card contracts with the merchants that prohibited them from charging different amounts for credit cards or cash. Um, until this became the subject of some antitrust litigation. And eventually, things shake out so that credit card companies start allowing merchants to charge more for credit card customers uh, than they would for cash customers. And suddenly, we have this conflict between what the merchants want to do and some of these state laws. Um, and so kind of here's the First Amendment question that's presented by the case. If I want to charge $100 for something when it's paid in cash and $103 when it's paid with a credit card, is that a $100 charge plus a $3 surcharge? Or is that a $103 charge with a $3 cash discount? Now, why does this matter? Now, economically, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. These are equivalent transactions. It just means that there's one price for credit cards and one price for cash. But psychologically, it makes a huge difference. There's this body of experimental uh, psychological economics uh, that finds that people are very loss averse. They, they're much more interested in avoiding surcharges than they are in gaining discounts. And so merchants have this strong incentive to characterize this price differential as a credit card surcharge. And the credit card companies have this strong incentive to prohibit you from doing that, from saying that you have to call it a cash discount. And so that's ultimately the legal issue that's at stake in the Schneiderman case. So Expressions Hair Design is a, uh, a salon that wants to advertise to people that they charge X amount for a haircut plus a 3% credit card surcharge. Is this a First Amendment question, or is this just a regulation of economic conduct? And the reason why that question matters is because for about 80 years, the Supreme Court has divided our constitutional rights into essentially two camps. There are meaningful rights uh, that get substantial constitutional review, the First Amendment being one of them. And then there are essentially meaningless rights, where the courts just don't look closely at the regulations at all. And that includes basically all economic regulation, including the regulation of prices. 
So this lawsuit goes to district court. The district court, uh, per Jed Rakoff, looks at it and says, there's obviously no economic difference. The only thing that matters here is the way you are communicating these price differentials to the customers. That's an obvious First Amendment problem. And so it strikes the law down. New York appeals to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which looks at the law and says, this is obviously a price regulation. And so it upholds the law. And then in a separate part of the opinion, it abstains under a doctrine called Pullman abstention from uh, doing additional analysis of the constitutionality of the law. So then it goes up to the US Supreme Court. And the US Supreme Court is faced with this question. And ultimately, the court, there's, uh, well, they all unanimously agree that the Second Circuit was wrong. Five of the justices believe that this is a First Amendment problem, and they, uh, they reverse and they remand the case back to the Second Circuit so it can do a full First Amendment analysis. So the court doesn't actually resolve the First Amendment question in the case, but it does say, and it treats, frankly, as obvious that this is a First Amendment question. So. There's not a lot of law that's created by this decision, but it is significant in a number of ways. And I think the first way that it's significant uh, is that it reaffirms recent Supreme Court precedent on the distinction between speech and conduct. This distinction really matters because if you're regulating speech, the government has to meet a very high standard. If you're regulating conduct, typically the government doesn't have to meet a very high standard. And there's been a big dispute in the courts for a long time over how you separate speech from conduct because there's a lot of conduct that we carry out via speech. If you enter into a criminal conspiracy, for example, well, you you typically do that by speaking with people. So how do you draw these lines? The point that the Institute for Justice stressed in our amicus brief is that there's actually a very clear test that the US Supreme Court laid out in 2010 in a case called Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project. And what the test is, is if the conduct that triggers the application of the law is the communication of a message, then that has to be treated as a regulation of speech and not as a regulation of conduct. So in Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, That was a case that dealt with uh, a law that prohibited providing, quote unquote, material support to certain designated foreign terrorist organizations. Uh, It was being applied in that case to people who wanted to give expert advice or assistance to those organizations on things like how to apply to the UN or the petition the World Court to peacefully resolve their grievances. The government in that case said, well, that's just conduct. That's, That's the conduct of providing material assistance. And the court unanimously said, no, that's, that's speech, because the conduct that triggers the application of the law is talking to people about particular subjects. Now, the court in Expressions Hair Design doesn't cite Holder of a Humanitarian Law Project for this point, but it conducts its analysis in the identical manner. And it basically just treats it as obvious that if the only difference in applying the law is whether you characterize this price differential as a surcharge or a discount, That's a First Amendment problem, and the courts need to consider it as such. I think the second thing that's significant about this case is that uh, Justice Breyer, who wrote a concurrence in the opinion, got absolutely no traction from any other justice. And uh, this goes back to what uh, Clay was saying about Justice Breyer being kind of the ultimate uh, consequentialist. He really doesn't go in for these clear rules that uh, Chief Justice Roberts really likes. Justice Breyer is also kind of the biggest booster on the court of the legal theories of the former Yale law dean, Robert Post. Um, And Robert Post uh, basically 
his view of the First Amendment is, in a sense, kind of Borkian in that he views it as being primarily about the protection of political speech. Um, he has a broader view than, than Robert Bork did. Um, but Robert Post is extremely critical of kind of the last 30 years of constitutional jurisprudence, which have given us this increased protection for commercial speech. And Breyer is you know, pretty clearly, at least in this case, on board with Robert Post. He cites his work. Um, and I was pleased to see that nobody else on the court bought into that at all. Um, so I think that goes to show how far the commercial speech revolution has come on the court, particularly when you consider that the five justices in the majority of the case consisted of uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Thomas, Kennedy, but then also Ginsburg and Kagan. So this is a, a change in the court that spans kind of the, the ideological spread of the court. Uh, the, the third interesting thing about the opinion, which I'll just mention briefly, is that there's this additional concurrence by Sotomayor and Alito uh, where they take is on. Is that the first time those two are together alone, just those two? I, I, it's, it certainly doesn't happen. I mean, I'm not aware of another yeah. opinion where that happens. It's, it's an unusual. I'm going uh, with that unless someone comprehends it. It wouldn't be surprising. Um, and, and they talk about uh, kind of this concept of abstention. Um, this is just significant. It, it may be more important for practitioners who work in this area. Um, but So the idea of abstention is essentially this judicially created doctrine that there are certain cases where the court will avoid resolving the merits because it thinks that somebody else should do it. And these abstention doctrines kind of exploded in the, the 1970s, and we've been seeing them pared back. Um, and there are now many more opinions that say that courts have a virtually unflagging commitment to reach the merits when they're properly presented to them uh, because these abstention doctrines just throw a huge wrench in the works and they can really slow up litigation. They can cost people lots of money. And what the court says, or, or I'm sorry, what uh, Sotomayor and Alito say here is that the court should not have abstained from this. What they should have done is certified the question to the uh, New York courts to see if there was some statutory interpretation that would have avoided the constitutional problems in this case. I think that actually would have been a pretty reasonable uh, way to deal with the case, but it's certainly preferable to the, the way that the Second Circuit took, uh, which was to abstain. Uh, so ultimately, we have a decision from the Supreme Court. Like I say, it doesn't break a lot of new ground, but it does reaffirm kind of this general tendency of the Roberts Court to prefer very clear rules uh, that help separate speech, which we are going to protect, from economic conduct, which is unfortunately still going to receive a lower level of constitutional protection. You know, what was interesting to me about this case, in addition to the, the First Amendment aspects that, that Paul so uh, cogently laid out, was the battle of psychologists, because kind of underlying the reason why credit card companies lobbied for these types of uh, laws is that apparently people uh, are more risk-averse and, and uh, uh, act against surcharges, would rather not pay credit if they see a surcharge, but doesn't really affect them as much if they see uh, a discount. And in fact, there was this battle of psychologists in the amicus briefs on both sides uh, in the case. I'll uh, commend those to you. Uh, last but not least, Bob Corn Revere is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine, specializing in First Amendment, uh, Internet, and Communications Law, and is also an adjunct scholar here at Cato. He has litigated the Communications Decency Act, Child Online Protection Act, Internet content filtering in public libraries, public broadcasting regulations, and export controls on encryption software. 
Bob successfully argued United States versus Playboy Entertainment Group, in which the Supreme Court struck down Section 505 of the Telecoms Act of 1996. He is chairman of the Media Institute's First Amendment Advisory Council and a member of the Institute's Board of Trustees. Bob has taught me so much over the years, and as you see, he is the ideal person to take the lay of the free speech land. Bob. Oh, thanks, Ilya, and thanks for inviting me to um, attend this great event again. Um, it has been a an, an remarkable term for First Amendment cases in the Roberts Court, but then <laughs> lately, pretty much every term when you're dealing with First Amendment cases has been a good term uh, in the Roberts Court for First Amendment cases. Um, there was one other case involving the free speech clause that hasn't been discussed so far, and that is one I'll just touch on briefly and then talk a little bit about how these three cases fit into the, um, the overall trend of the Roberts Court over the past 10 years. Uh, that case is Packingham versus North Carolina. Which we'll hear about next uh, panel as it and, happens. And so I'm just going to briefly uh, touch on it uh, just to round out the trilogy of the uh, three cases from this term. Um, those, that, that case involves a restriction placed on uh, former sex offenders even after they had paid their debts to society and had done their time, uh, there was a continuing restriction on the ability to access any kind of social media. Uh, and it was one that was expressed in very broad terms. Um, spoiler alert for the next panel, uh, the court unanimously held that that restriction simply went too far. And I'll simply say that that decision is the first of the cases that the Supreme Court has addressed the modern internet. By that I mean the internet from the past 10 years, um, the uh, time period in which um, Ilya has been at Cato and Paul has been at IJ, and the 10 years in which we have had smartphones. Um, it, this is the court reaffirming the principles that were established in 1997 in Reno versus ACLU, holding that the internet receives full First Amendment protection. So again, it's an important case in terms of reaffirming established principles in light of current concepts. Now, many have talked about the Roberts Court as being the most speech-protective court in history. Uh, Professor Joel Gora of uh, Brooklyn Law School, formerly uh, of the ACLU, has described the First Amendment as being sort of a free speech camelot under the uh, Roberts Court. Uh, Ron Collins, who is a noted uh, scholar and commentator on First Amendment and other constitutional issues, has called Chief Justice Roberts Mr. First Amendment uh, and has published an article entitled The Roberts Court, the First Amendment, and the New Absolutism. Now, I'm not sure I would go quite that far, uh, but uh, I think it is fair to say that these three decisions, all of which upheld very strongly First Amendment principles, fit well within the mold for the Roberts Court. Needless to say, it has not been without controversy. You have many scholars also arguing that the Roberts Court has not been good for First Amendment rights uh, for various reasons. Uh, one line of criticism is that it hasn't been speech protective enough. Uh, this by uh, Dean Erwin Shimerensky, now of Berkeley, who has argued that if you really look at the cases involving First Amendment, it has not been all that speech protective. And he points to cases like Morse versus Frederick, the Bong Hits for Jesus case, 
Garcetti versus Sabalos, whether or not uh, public employees have First Amendment rights, and Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, which Paul just mentioned, which held that um, uh, the government can label certain organizations as providing material support to terrorist organizations. And even though it is a speech regulation, and even though it gets strict scrutiny, the court ultimately upheld that regulation. Uh, other critics of the Roberts Court have argued that it simply overprotects bad speech. Uh, they look at cases like Snyder versus Phelps, or United States versus Stevens, or United States versus Alvarez, and say that isn't the kind of thing the First Amendment ought to be protecting. We think that is simply wrong. And then the third level of criticism is one that says that uh, the um, Roberts Court has overprotected business. They call it Lochnerizing the First Amendment that uh, essentially it has simply chosen sides, and as a result, it's a result in favor of business. It overprotects things like commercial speech. Let me address these things in somewhat of um, the order in which they come up to uh, show how the cases from this term fit within this tradition. First of all, uh, whether or not the Roberts Court has been speech protective enough. Um, well, it hasn't been. <laughs> I mean, it has been a terrific court for First Amendment purposes, but the court has not been perfect when it comes to First Amendment issues. I think that uh, uh, Dean Shimerensky has made some pretty strong and, and insightful criticisms of where the court has fallen short in uh, protecting speech in particular cases, and the ones that he selects for particular criticism, I would tend to agree. Morrison versus <laughs> Frederick, um, Garcetti versus uh, Sabalos, and... Uh, a humanitarian uh, law project. Those three cases are ones in which the court um, sort of tiptoed up to making the right decision, but then stopped short of doing it. Um, on the other hand, all of those cases, I think if you look at them, are early on in the, um, the Roberts Court's history. Over time, the court has become more speech protective. One exception from that is William G. Lee versus Florida Bar. Uh, where the court, uh, again, applied strict scrutiny to a restriction on whether or not judicial candidates for office could make direct fundraising appeals. It correctly held that strict scrutiny applies to that kind of regulation, but then uh, backed off and said that even though uh, you know, it really isn't going to affect the interest that the state was trying to achieve, and that is promoting judicial integrity, um, and that regulation is full of as full of holes as Swiss cheese, it nevertheless held that, that um, strict scrutiny was met. I would agree that in all of those cases, the court has fallen short. But compared to what is the question you always have to ask, isn't it? Uh, compared to other courts, whether it's the Burger Court, even the Warren Court, uh, I would put the Roberts Court right up there. Uh, the important thing, though, is to look at the number of principles that the court has reinforced in the decisions it's reached. And that's why this term is important, because it fits into this trend of the important lines of authority that the court has reaffirmed. First of all, and per perhaps one of the most important ones, it has reaffirmed the principle that there are no new categories of unprotected speech. As those of you who followed First Amendment law know, there are certain categories that, through dictum in a 1943 case, uh, people will often say, people like Howard Dean, that uh, you know, there are certain types of speech that we're not going to protect. And you list them like fighting words, uh, obscenity, incitement, uh, formerly commercial speech, uh, things like that. 
if you look at that, though, um, a lot has happened since 1943. In each of those categories of so-called unprotected speech, defamation is another one, um, you will see over time, as the court refined First Amendment jurisprudence, it began to what the scholars will call constitutionalize those areas of speech. And so what falls off the edge of the First Amendment earth and gets no protection becomes a narrower and narrower category of speech. So you have New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964. It says that defamation isn't protected, but the government or the private litigant has to jump through many hoops before you get there. The same with obscenity in 1957 with Roth versus the United States and Miller versus California in 1973. Obscenity is not protected, but again, you have many bulwarks of constitutional protections before you can declare that speech to be not protected. So in the last few terms, the court has issued a number of decisions saying that we are not going to expand those categories of unprotected speech in cases like Snyder versus Phelps, Brown versus EMA, United States versus Stevens, and United States versus Alvarez. In all of those cases, the court looked at what the litigants had argued on the other side should be unprotected, and it said, no, we're simply not going to go there. There may be other areas that historically don't get protection, but we're not, we haven't recognized them before. We're not going to recognize them now. Second area in which the uh, court has reinforced First Amendment principles is the area of unconstitutional conditions. That is a doctrine in which the government cannot demand of someone that they give up their rights in exchange for a government benefit. You can't say to someone, we'll give you that tax write-off if you give up your First Amendment rights, for example. Um, it is an area that has sort of had fallen into disuse for uh, a while, but was reaffirmed by the Roberts Court in Agency for International Development versus Open Society Network International, which said that to qualify for aid under a federal program, international agencies did not have to then parrot the government's line of being anti-prostitution. Um, the reason for that is that a number of international aid organizations were trying to provide assistance to people overseas, and they wanted to reach everybody, um, including prostitutes. And uh, this program got in the way, um, and the court held that, uh, um, in fact, you cannot demand you give up your First Amendment rights or parrot the government's line in exchange for a federal subsidy. <clears throat> The third area is the area of compelled speech. And this is an important area that we'll see in the coming term, as we will hear later on. And that is the notion that no official high or petty can demand that anyone mouth what is orthodox or agree with the government's position. Uh, the key case there is 1943, uh, um, Barnett versus West Virginia Board of Education, in which Jehovah's Witnesses, students in elementary school, were not required after the court ruled to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. <clears throat> We've seen this doctrine now reaffirmed by the Roberts Court very strongly. Uh, first, in the case that I just mentioned, the Agency for International Development case, saying that you can't compel a grant recipient to parrot the government's line, but also in a series of cases that are controversial in some quarters of whether or not you can compel people to pay union dues and whether or not you can have those government mechanisms operate to favor the speech of unions when they are engaged in political activities. Um, those cases, again, have reaffirmed the commitment against compelled speech. Fourth, and perhaps as importantly, uh, the court has re uh, reaffirmed the First Amendment neutrality principle. It said that we're going to treat different speakers and different kinds of speech equally. 
Now, um, it was mentioned earlier that the court has recognized hierarchies of speech with political speech being at the highest level, commercial speech lower, and so on. But that is true sometimes more as an exception than as a rule. Because one of the things that the main line of the Roberts Court decisions have said is that we are not going to recognize high-value speech with greater protection than low-value speech. And that was a case, that, that was a, a, a principle that the court really reaffirmed in Stevens, United States versus Stevens, um, where the court held that even if a law, this law against crush videos, had exceptions for speech of value, we're not going to create some hierarchy that says that certain kinds of high-value speech receive more protection. As Chief Justice Roberts wrote in that opinion, most of us say things that are not valuable all the time. You know, and yet that's protected by the First Amendment. Um, and so it's, again, a very important principle. Um, next, content-based uh, restrictions get strict scrutiny. And probably the strongest statement of that came in uh, Justice Thomas's opinion in Reed versus Town of Gilbert, uh, where he held that a uh, municipal uh, regulation of signs that based the different permissions for what, what kind of signs could be on public streets and how long they could be there and how large they could be was based on the content of the signs. Uh, the um, uh, opinion said that it did not matter whether or not the city intended to censor anybody. The fact that they were varying their regulation based on the content of the signs was enough and strict scrutiny applies. And then uh, also, um, the court has held that we are not going to balance speech. We're not going to weigh the value of one kind of speech versus others and uh, versus other governmental interests and decide on the basis of that that we will either protect or not protect the free speech interest. Again, cases like Alvarez, which held that you couldn't prohibit lying, uh, lying that you had won military honors, or uh, Brown versus EMA the uh, case in which the California regulation of violent video games was struck down, or against Stevens, the crush video case. In all of those cases, the court reaffirmed those principles. And so this term fits really squarely in all of those. The one category I haven't mentioned, and I think it does deserve its own ca uh, category, is campaign speech. And we didn't have one of those decisions, uh, one of those cases this term. But again, the hallmark of the Roberts Court has been it has treated speech involving political campaigns as distinctly worthy of protection, which has always struck me as, as sort of a, a weird paradox that we face in that area of the law. Apparently, the theory of those who want to regulate campaign speech more intensively is that that speech is just too important to be free. Uh, the Roberts Court has rebelled against that and issued a series of decisions, the most controversial of which is Citizens United. Um, and that is one of the things that has generated a lot of the criticism of the Roberts Court. Um, but what about this notion that the court simply favors business, that it's lochnerizing the First Amendment? This strikes me as um, another irony. Uh, it seems like those who complain that the Roberts Court has been result-oriented are most upset at its results. And so they are simply complaining they don't like the, the way the decisions have come out. The notion that the Roberts Court has uniquely favored business strikes me as particularly odd when you look at the kinds of cases in which what others describe as worthless speech uh, have created very important and vibrant new First Amendment principles, or at least decisions reaffirming those principles. Snyder versus Phelps. 
I don't think anybody's going to argue that the Westboro Baptist Church is big business, and yet the uh, Supreme Court upheld their right, uh, just as anybody else's right, to speak in the public forum. United States versus Stevens. Stevens, a guy who wrote books about pit bulls and made movies that happened to incorporate footage that others had taken, not big business, and the court upheld his right to, to make those, those products. Um, United States versus Alvarez, some scumbag who lies about getting the Congressional Medal of Honor, not big business. And you can see this on and on in, in the trend of decisions. If, if you want to look for decisions that uphold the rights of the little guy or the dispossessed or people who are on the fringe of society, you'll find them in those decisions. So overall, I'm optimistic about the trend of the court, and I think this term fits very nicely within that trend. Thanks, Bob. Uh, and I'm hoping that in our discussion we can get into what seems to be the, the most livest threat, uh, to, the most live threat to the freedom of speech, which isn't so much the courts, at least not the Supreme Court, but what's going on in our college campuses. Indeed, as I was going through my Twitter feed, I wasn't, uh, if those of you who are looking at me, I wasn't looking at my fantasy football results. I think I lost both my teams uh, yesterday, but um, rather the uh, hashtag Cato SCOTUS, if you're tweeting about, uh, about our event, is, is what you should be using. But uh, while I was looking at that, I came across that uh, for Constitution Day, Princeton, my alma mater, I think, which has been better than a lot of schools on, on these issues, to its shame, uh, some organization, I didn't read the article, is having a free speech uh, conference today. And I noted the irony that they can only do this because of the freedom of speech. But anyway, uh, I, I hope that we can get into those kinds of uh, issues and discussion. But first, I want to ask uh, uh, Clay and Paul if, if you want to um, uh, say anything further based on what Bob said or other issues that have come out. Sure. I think on, on Bob's point about how the Roberts Court being very pro-protective, I think, as I mentioned with the uh, TAM case, and uh, Justice Thomas on commercial speech, calling for commercial speech to be subject to strict scrutiny rather than intermediate scrutiny, in other words, to finally move it to that top. I think that actually might happen sometime, uh, especially because Kennedy in, in TAM uh, and his group of his block of four justices also said that anytime anything is viewpoint-based, even if it's commercial speech, it's subject to strict scrutiny. And then Alito, who applied the intermediate level of scrutiny standard, even said sometimes it's hard to distinguish commercial speech from other categories of speech. So I do think there's a possibility that given the right case, they, they punted a few years ago in the Nike versus Caskey case. The court had the opportunity to address this. Nike had run some what we might call advertorials, basically, saying that we don't engage in child labor practices. Uh, and the court had a great chance to, to address, is that ad advertorial, is it really political speech or is it commercial speech? Because if you buy that, you say, well, I, oh, that's good to know. I'm going to buy some Nike shoes, even though it wasn't really advertising the price of Nike shoes. And the court ultimately said, uh, we improvidently granted certiorari and kicked that issue down the road. So someday I think the court does have to readdress how do we define commercial speech and then what standard of scrutiny are we going to apply to it? So I think it's good that Thomas is out there on this issue. He is the lone person who keeps hammering this, and he's been doing it now for about 20 years. Yeah, the only thing that I want to respond to briefly is, you know, I agree with Bob that the general trend of the Roberts Court has been very good. Uh, I do have a concern about, you know, what may seem like kind of minor exceptions that I think are 
have the potential to play out badly in the lower courts. And that is the, the outcome in Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project and the case William Julie versus Florida Bar that Bob referred to briefly. Those are the only two cases in U.S. history where the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld a speech restriction under strict scrutiny. And I think they are sort of understandable in the sense that they're not really strict scrutiny cases. I, th I think Roberts is treating uh, national security as kind of different. And in William Julie, I think he's treating judges as just kind of different. And so I don't think he goes through the kind of probing analysis we would really want in a strict scrutiny case. But the, the problem is that he uses all the language of strict scrutiny. And I think we're already starting to see some lower courts that are citing to decisions like Williams, Yulee versus Florida Bar to uphold other laws under strict scrutiny that typically we would not want to see upheld. And that was always the thing. Strict scrutiny was always presumed to be fatal in fact. And what, what standard you apply is going to really determine the outcome of the case. But now we're having cases actually survive strict scrutiny. So the question is, does strict scrutiny kind of become a watered down? Or, or is it strict in, it's strict in theory, but now it's, cases can pass it? I, I would agree with that, Chris. I think that's one of the problems of both of those cases, um, Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project and uh, Williams U. Lee. Uh, they are not unprecedented. Uh, there's uh, uh, Freeman versus Burson, which is what a 1992 case uh, involving uh, buffer zones outside polling places on election day. But there are very few cases where you're going to find strict scrutiny uh, applied and then have the restriction on speech apply. And if this trend results in watering down strict scrutiny, then it's something that we really have to pay attention to and watch. Um, I think that was the big flaw in Williams U. Lee um, in particular, well, and, and both in, in Holder, uh, where they applied strict scrutiny or said they were applying strict scrutiny, but then didn't really. All right, uh, let's open the floor to questions. Uh, our basic rules are please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so uh, everyone can hear you, including our online audience. Announce your name and affiliation and actually ask a question. All right, who's, who's first? I see a hand right here. And then after that, we'll go over there. Uh, Kenneth Jost, Supreme Court Yearbook. Are there First Amendment implications to the story being investigated um, about foreign entities using Facebook uh, to um, apparently try to influence the election without using magic words like vote for X or Y? Um, does, does that conduct fall within the, the prohibition against foreign, foreigners uh, spending in federal elections? And are there First Amendment implications to application of that law? Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll touch on that briefly. I, you know, I have not looked closely enough at the allegations to know whether it falls within the statutory scope of the, the prohibition on foreign influence on American elections. In terms of whether that would raise a First Amendment problem if it does fall within the scope, uh, I, it certainly raises a First Amendment issue. I think it's an issue that the court resolved pretty clearly in uh, Blumen versus Federal Election Commission. Uh, so in that case, uh, that was a, a case involving uh, some non-citizens who lived in the United States lawfully who wanted to spend money and make political contributions uh, to influence federal elections. It went up to the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit 
in what I think was frankly a pretty unconvincing opinion that kind of danced around the, the serious First Amendment questions, upheld the federal prohibition uh, under this procedure of direct appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. It went up and it was summarily affirmed by the Supreme Court with no opinion. Now, since that case involved people who were actually lawfully within the United States, and there's case law that says people who are lawfully within the United States get the full protection of the First Amendment, that's an, that's an easier case than, uh, or uh, that's, a, that's a harder case for the government than if the speakers are actually overseas. Um, now, one interesting thing about the Roberts Court is that it has taken a more listener-centric approach to the First Amendment. So it's not just the right of people to speak, but it is the right of listeners to receive information. And so I think you could make an argument that, you know, people in America have a, a right to consider these messages even if they come from overseas, and that's not quite as radical as it sounds. I mean, there are magazines like The Economist that are foreign-owned, that are foreign publications, that make endorsements for presidential elections, and I don't think we, we feel that the will of the voters is overborne by that. On that point about the right to receive speech, and I know the Packingham decision is coming up on the next one, Packingham is very much about access, access to the interchange of ideas, not just the ability to speak, but also Packingham's ability to receive information online and interchanges of speech. So I think that access principle that Kennedy lays out in Packingham, access to speech and access to messages, is important. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I don't have any opinions on how the, the statute might apply, but I think it's an area to watch because of the way policymakers will react to the use of online platforms for various kinds of speech considered to be illegal or harmful in, in some way. And we see that in the uh, debates over SESTA right now. Um, but to the extent, and, and we saw this also last year when um, what's there, SESTA, there was the trending topics issue and whether or not uh, Facebook had, uh, how it was moderating um, trending news topics. You had um, letters coming from Congress demanding that they get their editorial standards and so on. And as these issues play out in the policy arena, I expect we'll see the activity directed not at the Russian government or Russian entities that are planting stories, but at the platforms in which those stories are then disseminated. And that's where I think we'll begin to see some very concrete First Amendment issues. If, if I can add just one thing, I, I, I think another thing that we should think about when we think about these issues is what interest is the government really getting at when it tries to regulate the speech? What is it trying to prevent uh, from happening? And what it's really trying to prevent from happening is people casting ballots that are different than they otherwise might be if they had not received this information. And that sort of raises the question, well, wh what's the platonically correct vote for a person to, ca to, to cast? And I, I think there really is no such thing. Um, so, it, you know, sort of query what the government is trying to aim at here. Over there, and then we'll go over there. This is the author of the article on Expressions Hair Design, so he'll tell us if Paul got anything wrong. Uh, I'm not going uh, to sandbag Paul, but I, uh, uh, I, I thought you did a great job. I uh, had one particular question, as you know. Mark Chenoweth. Just to... Oh, sorry, Mark Chenoweth uh, and, and Scalia Law School. Uh, shortly after the court handed down its decision uh, in Expressions Hair, almost immediately afterwards, uh, it uh, granted, vacated, and remanded uh, a similar case out of the Fifth Circuit, Ralvi Pettyjohn, uh, which uh, the Fifth Circuit had also upheld Texas's statute that was similar to, to New York's. Uh, but it denied cert uh, in a case out of the Eleventh Circuit where the Eleventh Circuit had struck down 
Florida's a similar statute. And my question for you is, uh, do you view the court's implicit acceptance of the 11th Circuit's reasoning, uh, First Amendment reasoning in Dana's railroad supply uh, v. Bondi as indicative of where it would have come down had it completed its First Amendment analysis in expressions here? It's a good question. It's actually not something that I had thought about, but I think that's probably a, a reasonable surmise. Uh, you, you know, this the litigation against these credit card surcharge laws, incidentally, is a great example of uh, kind of teeing up multiple cases in multiple circuits to try and attract Supreme Court attention, because it wasn't just this case in New York. There was a case that was filed in Florida, a case in Texas, a case in California, uh, and uh, Deepak Gupta, who litigated the cases, uh, pushed them all forward very aggressively, ended up getting the split that, that attracted court attention. But yeah, I, I think your surmise is, is reasonable. I saw a hand up there. Thank you. David Schneer, FME Law. Uh, moving this just a little bit to the side, I was wondering, since we're looking now at the internet and uh, the opportunity to communicate through the mechanisms, we're seeing a number of cases at the state level and to some degree at the federal level with regard to emails and whether emails are a public forum. And so I ask uh, you to contemplate, or, or Twitter, what is the, what's the state of the art? It used to be the first thing you had to show is you were speaking in a public forum. Is this now uh, a point that's foregone or is this going to be a point that will have to be taken up? I think this is where the, the Packingham decision really, and I don't want to take the thunder out of that, really comes, <laughs> comes into play. It's uh, Kennedy equates in that decision uh, social networks, Facebook and Twitter, with traditional public fora of parks and streets. And then in the interesting part of that, and I'm sorry, I'm just shut up by now. Packingham, save it for later. But no, uh, you, you all are doing a great job of teasing our next panel. David Goldberg, thanks you, who's speaking on it. So uh, what, what's really fascinating is Kennedy engages in all this great language, extolling the virtues of online social media. And then, just as in the, just as in the split in the, the TAM case that I talked about, Alito objects to this as undisciplined dicta. Well, the reality is that Packingham has already been cited now in the two major lawsuits, the one that you just referred to, Ilya, uh, from the Knight Institute uh, at Columbia University against Trump, uh, Sean Spicer, who was the uh, secretary, I guess, uh, press secretary, uh, saying that uh, people have a right to follow and that Trump cannot block them. Uh, also in Maine, the LePage case, the governor had blocked people from his Facebook account, uh, and the ACLU in Maine has filed a lawsuit saying that you can't, the government official who runs a, a Facebook page can't block them. And then we had a decision coming down here in Virginia, uh, Davison, maybe? Yeah, Davison. And uh, there, a federal district judge actually said that, indeed, uh, government officials who run these accounts, these are uh, government entities, and the First Amendment does apply with full force. And it's also the right to petition, not just the right of free speech, but the ability to petition the government. Yeah, there's also a case pending in Maryland colleague uh, Lisa Zeigerman against Governor Hogan, who was uh, deleting people whose comments he didn't like off of his, uh, his Facebook account. But the issue in this isn't whether or not Facebook is a public forum or Twitter or whatever the platform is. It's whether or not the government entity or government official is treating it as a public forum and how they manage it. And if they are treating it as their official way of communicating with people, then if they start getting involved in 
simply deleting comments in the way that Mayor Daley used to handle uh, aldermen during uh, meetings of the Chicago City Council, simply turning off the microphones of those he doesn't like uh, or with whom he disagrees, uh, then you have a constitutional problem. There was a hand right here. Do you still want a question? Jim Calderwood with Zucker Scott Rassenberger. I uh, believe recently there was a, a case filed by the ACLU uh, concerning advertising by the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Commission on Metro Rail, uh, where Metro Rail uh, accepts certain types of advertising, but those that they consider are going to be offensive, they turn down. And uh, the suit would be because the Metro Rail system sells advertising. Uh, can it decide which advertising it will accept? Uh, they have an issue uh, with if it accepts some certain type of advertising. Let's say the American Nazi Party wanted to have ads in the metro rail with anti-Jewish, uh, anti-Catholic, anti-black, anti-everything. Then nobody uh, is a department store, an automobile dealership, or whatever, is not going to want to have their ads uh, right next to those sorts of things, and therefore Metro may lose money from ad sales. Uh, so my question is, do you know of situations where there have been any Supreme Court decisions dealing with the idea of a government entity selling advertising, uh, but taking a position on uh, what advertising it will allow and what advertising it won't? Seventy-four decision, uh, Lehman versus City of Shaker Heights, which is one of the early uh, public forum decisions that uh, addressed the question of whether or not advertising space inside transit buses uh, was a public forum, and, and that case held that that was not a public forum. Uh, we've come a long way since then. Not the uh, forum doctrine has gotten any more clear since 1974. It's sort of metastasized, but um, I think you would have courts looking more at how the government is using that space. Is it using it, it, uh, the space in a governmental function or in a proprietary function? If it's considered to be a governmental function, then it would be more likely to be found a public forum. But you kind of have to take these cases one by one. Right behind the previous question. And then we're going to go over here. Devin Watkins, um, where do you see Justice Gorsuch? Yes, uh, where do you see uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, fitting into the First Amendment jurisprudence here? How do you think he will shift the balance, or uh, change, or fit into the varying First Amendment views? I good. I suspect that he's not going to be a major shift from where Justice Scalia was. He seems to be very consistent, um, at least in the, the limited stuff that we've seen from him, um, particularly in the area of campaign finance. Uh, it looks like he's probably going to be in the same mold as Scalia. Um, one interesting question is whether he is going to uh, side with Justice Thomas on questions about campaign finance disclosure. Uh, Thomas is the sole member of the court who thinks that campaign finance disclosure triggers meaningful First Amendment scrutiny and that it's largely unconstitutional. Um, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, I think there are some reasons to believe Gorsuch might agree with it, too. Yeah, I just reiterate that all three of these decisions, including the Packingham of the next one, but Tam and Expressions, were all eight justice decisions. So he was not obviously involved in any of the cases. Predictions um, about how uh, Justice Gorsuch is going to operate, except for two. 
One is oral arguments will not be nearly as funny. Um, and uh, um, the second is he's not going to open up the libel laws. <laughs> so you don't think Justice Breyer, who is now asking the most number of questions, is as funny as Scalia, huh? <laughs> Different way. <laughs> Um, there was a hand over here, uh, Paul. Yellow tie. Former legal. Yeah, Paul Jossie. I'm a, a adjunct at the uh, Center for Competitive Politics. Um, the um, it was mentioned the the criticism of Citizens United that that has been uh, received by the court and uh, the court had the chance uh, this term, I believe, to uh, take a couple additional. Uh, campaign finance cases, uh, in, Institute of in Individualism that dealt with uh, uh, donor privacy and uh, Louisiana Republican Party, which dealt with independent expenditures, and it turned both of them down, um, even though they were both uh, three judge uh, panels, not not um, your, the regular certiorari process. And there's another case that's coming out that will eventually come out of the Ninth Circuit um, with Americans for Prosperity. So. Um, uh, my question is, has, has the criticism uh, of the intelligentsia against Citizens United shamed the court to not take these other uh, cases that were ripe to uh, further expand the, the First Amendment in campaign finance cases? Well, Peter did file amicus briefs in almost any of those. So. <laughs> There's your explanation. <laughs> um, well. I, I, I think there may be something to that. So, you know, one of the unusual things about campaign finance cases is that many of them go up to the court through this direct appeal process where the court is, normally if the court denies certiorari, that is not a statement on whether the decision below was right or wrong. Um, but when it goes up on direct appeal, the court either has to take up the case for full hearing on the merits or it has to summarily affirm the case, which is a, a precedential decision. And so because the so many campaign finance cases go up on direct appeal, the court from kind of like 2004 till 2011 really was hearing a ton of these cases, um, probably more than it wanted to. Uh, and I think on one level it just has kind of fatigue on the issue and wants to hear cases on different issues. I, I think there may be something to the idea that Roberts doesn't want to burn a lot of additional institutional capital on uh, cases like the Citizens United decision. Well, first, let me just take issue a little bit with um, the way you framed your question. I, I like to think intelligent people support the decision in Citizens United. Um, so it's not just the intelligentsia who's criticizing the court uh, over that. Um, secondly, um, I think a more likely explanation for why the court hasn't been willing to take cases that were more prone to be divided five to four uh, is because they didn't have a full complement of justices for a lot of these uh, decisions on cert. And so I think that uh, we'll see, as the coming term ma matures, uh, we'll see a better trend line for whether or not the court is willing to take those cases up. If, if I can add just w one more thing, I, I, I want to say something about Citizens United um, and the 5-4 decision in that, because I, I think it illustrates an interesting dynamic on the court that, that people should take more notice of. If you look at cases like the Stevens case, the crush video case, Snyder versus Phelps, uh, Alvarez, you know, lying about having received the Medal of Honor. None of these are close cases. These are all cases where you've got very low value speech, not very influential, and the court 
not unanimously, but almost unanimously, protects that speech. If you want to look at really closely, bitterly divided cases, it's not the cases that involve outrageous or offensive speech. It's the cases that involve very effective speech, speech that could change people's minds, that could cause them to vote one way or another, that could cause them to make market decisions that people think they shouldn't make. Those are the cases that are really dividing the court. And uh, so, you know, as much as we talk about offensive speech and political correctness, and that's a big issue kind of in the campus environment, I think in the in the day-to-day business of what the court is doing, the real fights are about whether we are going to protect speech that can influence people in the real world. And I'm talking about those opinions being nearly unanimous. As I mentioned before, Alito is typically the one who dissents in those cases. He was the lone dissenter in Snyder versus Phelps, the Westboro Baptist Church case the lone dissenter, I think, in, in the Stevens case, the Crush Video case, and also in Alvarez. He wrote a dissent, although he was joined in that case, uh, by Thomas uh, and Scalia. So uh, he, and so why does he switch over uh, in, in TAM? As I said, I, I think it's more about the idea of pushing back against political correctness than Alito is suddenly, Alito kind of still subscribes, I think, to the low value theory, frankly. Yeah. I mean, if he does. Well, I think he does, yeah. yeah, yeah. He subscribes to that. And, and that was the reference to, that Bob made to the Shaplinsky case in the 40s that kind of set us down this path of high value, low value speech. And I think Alito still buys that. Yeah, yeah. but I think uh, another explanation for his, uh, um, his authorship in TAM is he wanted to push back against how the uh, government speech doctrine had developed since City of Pleasant Grove versus Summum, which he was the author of that opinion on government speech, which basically said that when cities accept monuments to place in the park, that becomes government speech. And it's created this whole doctrine of if it's government speech, then there's no First Amendment protection for, I think, some fairly obvious reasons. The government doesn't restrict itself. And, but, but in any event, the court extended that to the furthest reaches in the Sons of Confederate Veterans case in Walker. And um, I think Alito wanted to draw a sharp line using Mattel versus Tam as the vehicle for that to say that this government speech doctrine is not going to go any further. Okay. All right, let's go all the way to the back row and then all the way to the second row after that. And if you want to tweet at me, those of you in uh, virtual <laughs> land, hashtag Cato Scotus. John Vecchioni, cause of action. Um, particularly with the Alvarez case, but some of the others as well, um, the court used to be uh, very unprotective of false speech. And there are a lot of people sitting in prison for false speech, of, for fraud. Um, does anyone think that Alvarez and some of the other free speech um, rulings are sort of nibbling away at some of the fraud doctrine? I say that is because of an amicus brief that we filed in the case and points others made as well, that uh, those cases that have prohibited false speech, it hasn't been the falsity per se that, that allows the government to act. It is the falsity plus. It is falsity plus some kind of crime, like fraud, uh, like perjury, uh, like other kinds of crimes where you have a actual consequence. And so you're regulating that consequence and you're not simply re regulating you know, the falsehood by itself. Because once you do, and once you allow the government to become the arbiter of truth, then there's really no way to contain that doctrine. Yeah, I think that's what Kennedy said in Alvarez. He said, just a lie in the air, basically. I mean, it yeah. was just, there was no harm. Yeah, there was middle of the second row here. Uh, Wanda Treffel. 
I have no legal background, whatever. What brought me here today was trying to understand the issues in the Charlottesville uh, incident. Um, the people who were protesting the um, statue, the monument, um, was their speech protected by the, by the Constitution to protest? Um, in the future, can towns refuse uh, neo-Nazis the right to march or protest or, or assemble because they are not in favor of their views? How, how does that play out against the Constitution? I'm at the University of Florida, and uh, Richard Spencer, the head of the National Policy Institute, asked to speak at the University of Florida shortly thereafter, after Charlottesville. Uh, and the university denied his application to speak. Uh, he got a First Amendment attorney uh, who threatened to file a lawsuit in that case. Uh, the university said, oh, no, 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 we're not saying you can never speak. Uh, this was just too close after Charlottesville. We need a little breathing space, basically. Uh, and so he's set to speak on the 19th. And University of Florida is a public university. Uh, the really interesting question on these that I think is interesting is uh, – the idea of the heckler's veto in the First Amendment yeah. issue that the audience's reaction should not be allowed to silence the speaker, no matter how controversial it is. But then how much can the University of Florida foist off on the National Policy Institute to cover the cost of police uh, protection and services? In a way, do I have to buy my own defense to ward off the heckler's veto? Because if those costs become unreasonably high, in other words, you know, okay, National Policy Institute, you can come and speak, but you're responsible for covering the cost of all the cops, and these costs are gonna, they're gonna cost you all this, then eventually it's gonna have a chilling effect on the speech. Yeah. I think that's an interesting <coughs> issue that remains to be seen. The, there's one major exception, which is incitement to violence, the Brandenburg test, which is an exception from the First Amendment, but in that case, the speech has to be directed, meaning intended to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and likely to produce it. So it's really not built for a situation in which you have past bad action in Charlottesville, even if you blamed it on him, and, and there's a lot to say it wasn't, but if you blamed it on him, how much can you use that to prognosticate or predict now that it's going to happen? And, and the Brandenburg test, I don't think, frankly, is built for that. I, those are just initial observations. Yeah. I don't know. Actually, the court addressed that issue of the security feedback in the 90s in a case called uh, Forsyth County versus the Nationalist Movement. And it was a question whether or not a Klan march could take place without their paying a, a higher security fee. The court held that you couldn't impose a, a, a higher fee simply based on anticipating they are going to be particularly unpopular, saying that the First Amendment doesn't permit the government to tax people who are unpopular with bottle throwers. Okay, um, we've applied that in various of our, the campus speech cases that we're handling where uh, a campus had invited a speaker who had been part of the Occupy movement and the university decided that that would be controversial and they wanted to impose a higher fee because of that. Um, and uh, in that case, we sued the university, but it, it ended up uh, settling with us. Um, but you see these issues playing out again and again around the issue of the heckler's veto. What is the government's obligation when you have the anticipation that a uh, speech or a demonstration may turn violent um, and uh, what do they have to do? And, and the cases that have been decided through the uh, decades of the 20th century involving people on all sides of the political spectrum and, and mainly decided during the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement is it is the government's obligation to be content neutral and to protect the speaker. 
that uh, if there's a threat of violence, you make sure that the speaker has the ability to uh, have an open platform. Neither side in that equation has a First Amendment right to commit violence, but that it is the government's uh, obligation to preserve order, which is, I think, the failure in Charlottesville, where you had the police who simply did not do their jobs, uh, as they did in Boston in the uh, demonstration that followed that. Uh, Jay Schweikert, Williams and Connolly. Um, so following up on that previous question, um, all the panelists there I think were talking about some of the free speech implications of, uh, you know, protest and, you know, speech on college campuses, et cetera, in the context of the First Amendment and the free speech as a right against the government, which is obviously very relevant in the case of public universities. But it seems like a lot of the free speech threats that we are concerned about that I think may be part of what Ilya was referring to are less free speech in the strictly First Amendment context, but more free speech as a general liberal norm for a free society, like sort of the concept of academic freedom writ large across society. Because obviously in the case of a private university, they have a First Amendment right to exclude speakers they don't like. And so my question is, are you concerned? It seems like the, 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 the gist of a lot of what you were saying is that free speech as a, as a First Amendment doctrine is reasonably secure, at least in these contexts, notwithstanding a lot of the controversy on campuses. But is free speech as a general liberal norm in danger? Is it is it a concept that a lot of, hello, hello, that young people growing up today are sort of losing faith with and that even if that doesn't immediately affect judicial doctrine, is that a, is that a long-term threat to sort of general values that underlie the First Amendment in this country? I was wondering when we'd get to the blame the millennials portion of our uh, presentation. <laughs> so. I, I honestly think it is. I, I, I think it is a problem. Uh, I teach undergraduates uh, who are primarily juniors and seniors. Uh, and sometimes I feel it's almost like re-education. Uh, I recently saw a South Park uh, skit with Cartman uh, about safe spaces. If you haven't seen this one, it's great. Uh, he's Cartman's in his little safe space, you know. Uh, and I do think I teach Cohen versus California. I just taught it uh, last week, and I teach it very early on. The F the draft case. We're on C-SPAN. I'm sorry. Anyway. What, what case was that? draft. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, thanks. Just wanted to clarify that. So I teach that early on and I'm trying to make these students, you know, first of all, it's like that. Who wants to say it first? You know, do I, am I the one who's going to break the ice and say that? Uh, but I do think it is, it, it is a, a battle, uh, that we're going to have to continue to fight, especially on college campuses where presidents do have to, I mean, they're in different difficult position. They're, they're out there to raise money. They're balancing alumni interests. They're, they're trying to say we do have this educational environment. The marketplace of ideas depends upon rational debate and discussion. Uh, that's what college campuses, the universities, uh, excuse me, the Supreme Court has said. You know, the classroom with the surrounding environs are marketplaces of ideas. Uh, they're in tough positions, uh, and it, I don't think there are any really easy answers. You just have to have neutral policies. You cannot base it, as you were suggesting. You can't do content-based. You can't make those decisions. So whatever it is. Uh, and in this case, like I said, with the University of Florida, Richard Spencer, they, they got the attorney, and the attorney, uh, Edinger is his name, and they basically are now backtracking on that. So it's kind of probably what you'll see elsewhere, because Auburn had the lawsuit filed, and Auburn had to admit him, uh, Spencer, too. So, Yeah, I think you've put your, your finger on, on a real concern. 
And it's one, not a matter of re-education, it's a matter of just simple education. I mean, so many people are completely ignorant of our history and, and of civics. I think really uh, the solution starts elementally way back earlier in your education, not in college, in just basic civics education. Uh, but I think Learned Hand expressed this best in the 1940s when he wrote that if we don't have a love of freedom, if we don't uh, cherish it in our hearts and minds, that no law, no constitution can save it. And I think someone it, needs to tweet that out. That's very it, good. It, it imposes a uh, a burden on all of us to do that education, to explain to people what it's about, to engage in those debates. It's one of the reasons why, if Princeton has a the First Amendment or free speech event. We should welcome that. I mean, it's, it's terrific, <laughs> not just ironic. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity to explain why these principles exist, why they have to be neutral, uh, and why they protect us all. Yeah, neutrality is the biggest thing that I try to – I say the First Amendment, it doesn't say good speech, bad speech, Republican speech, Democratic speech. It just says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And I think that's the biggest thing. That, and you don't have a right to be free from offense, especially in a public place. And those are just gigantic principles. All right. Well, I think uh, we're going to end it there, lest we uh, otherwise end it on a, on a worse note. So let's, uh, let's thank our speakers.